Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. O is for outside. One outside, uh, to be given its full title, commonly referred to as Outside, Bowie's 19th studio album, released on the 25th of September 1995 on Virgin Records. And it marked Bowie's reunion with Brian Eno. Of course, he'd worked with him on the Berlin Trilogy in the 70s. He did. So, subtitled The Nathan Adler Diaries, A Hypercycle, Outside is set in a dystopian world on the eve of the 21st century. The album put Bowie back into the mainstream rock world with singles The Heart's Filthy Lesson, Strangers When We Meet and Hello Space Boy. Mm. They were great records. They were great, great records, those. Bowie had met up with Eno again Again, at his wedding to Iman in 1992, uh, Bowie and Eno each played pieces of their own music at the wedding reception and delighted at the, quote near the ebb and flow of couples on the dance floor. It's a great little image, that, isn't it? What does that mean? <laughs> at that point, as Bowie put it later, we were both interested in nibbling at the periphery of the mainstream rather than jumping in. We sent each other long manifestos about what was missing in music and what we should be doing. We decided to really experiment and go into the studio with not even a gnat of an idea. So Bowie and Eno, this is... This is crazy, this, actually. Uh, Visited the Agugin, is it? Psychiatric Hospital near Vienna, Austria, in early 1994 and interviewed and photographed its patients who were known for creating outsider art, which itself these days is a category. But in those days, really wasn't particularly, I don't think, anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, Bowie and Eno brought some of that art back with them into the studio as they worked together in March 1994, coming up with a three-hour piece that was mostly dialogue. So it was quite a weighty concept this isn't it you know and quite it was always very con- it was always very confusing really wasn't mm. it i mean i never really understood the, no, whole, I didn't. the, the whole concept of it it was almost like two ideas kind of mashed into one wasn't it really it should have been like perhaps a book it reminds me a little bit of the lamb lies down on broadway by genesis in the fact that it seems to, like complicated and slightly confused i bet bowie and eno weren't confused i by don't it. think Probably so just me <laughs> no and me in 1994 q magazine asked bowie to write a diary for 10 days to be published in the magazine at a later date uh, Bowie, however, was worried that his diary might be a bit dull. <laughs> He's quoted here, go to a studio, come home, go to bed. Oh. So he decided instead to write a diary for one of the fictional characters named Nathan Adler, as you mentioned, from his earlier improvisation with Eno. Bowie said, rather than 10 days, it became 15 years in his life. And this became the basis for the story of outside. Right, okay. So uh, by the end of all this, we'll both understand it a lot better, Hopefully. won't we? Uh, not a single song was written prior to Bowie and the band going into the studio. Instead, he wrote many of the songs in improvised sessions with the band. He and Eno also continued the experimental techniques they had started using during the Berlin trilogy. I bet he must have really missed Eno. 
you know, must be gagging to work with him again, I'm yeah. guessing. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because, I mean, they had such a great relationship, uh, both personally and professionally. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, if you like Bowie and you want to keep moving on, and Eno just as much, actually, sure. you know, then he, you're going you're gonna to run out of ideas, aren't you? Yeah. And I think that did happen with him eventually, but we'll, we'll find out. Yeah. Promoting the album in 1995, Bowie said, what Brian did, uh, which was really useful, is he provided everybody with flashcards at the beginning of the day. On each one, a character was written like, you are the disgruntled member of a South African rock band play the notes that were suppressed uh, because that set the tone for the day said Bowie the music would take on all these obscure areas and it very rarely laps into the cliche well it would <laughs> with that <laughs> with that manifesto you are the disgruntled member of a South African rock band love like, that yeah right. we've been through there haven't yeah, we yeah, before yeah. I think that might was that to Reeves Gabrell's was it I think uh, it might possibly have been. Yes, yes yeah yes. the random cut ups from the Adler story that apart the album's lyrics and liner notes were written by Bowie who typed them into his Mac computer Computer to begin with. Then he ran a custom program called a Verbicizer, which would cut up and reassemble Bowie's words electronically, much like he'd done earlier in his career with paper, scissors and glue. Brilliant. I didn't even know that existed, this well, program. I, uh, I only know that because I was uh, interviewing Brian Eno a couple of years ago now, and we talked about the Verbicizer, and there's a new version of that, of that and he was saying how much Bowie would have loved that now, because it was just, you know, it makes the Verbicizer look like paper, scissors and glue, you know? Yeah, you have to wonder how many people would actually Actually, he didn't want to use it. Like, as we know, it's a Burroughs technique, wasn't it? Yes, and, yeah. Uh, and, and a couple of other people were using the same kind of scenario. And then Bowie took it and ran with it. And we see the footage on Crack Tactic mm. and physically cutting yeah, the stuff yeah, up. Sure. But I wonder, you know, that it can't be many people in many walks of life who need to get their own words and then just randomly <laughs> cut them up and reassemble them. Not really. Or even feed them into a computer and see what that does. Having said that, anybody who's heard me on the radio will think I'm using one <laughs> quite often, but I'm, you, I'm not. I thought you used a verbicizer for a while now, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> he would then look at the lyrics while the band played a song and decide, and this is Bowie's words here, whether I was going to sing, do a dialogue or become a character. I'd improvise with the band really fast on my feet, getting from one line to another and seeing what worked. Bowie claimed it took about three and a half hours using this method to create virtually the entire genesis of Outside. Right. Eno remembered later that Bowie almost sat out the first few days of that record. He set up an easel in the studio and was just painting. We were creating musical situations and occasionally he would join in if it became interesting. That's a great idea. You know, just sat there perhaps, you know, on the periphery of stuff, making yeah. your own album. Yeah, it's great. The key thing here is that, like, after all the excesses of the 80s, Bowie was ready to take his place as an outsider artist Definitely. again. So, we, again, we've discussed this with Never Let Me Down particularly, mm. uh, but he just got dragged into the mainstream, didn't he? Yeah. And, uh, and he was desperate to drag himself out of it. Well, there's also, you know, that thing where just a few years before this, when he was doing Black Tie, White Noise, and uh, with Niall Rogers, he reunited with him as producer, mm. and Niall wanted to do Let's Dance too, didn't he? And Bowie fought against it all yeah. the way and got his way obviously his album yeah. uh, Bowie knew that he might face problems when Outside came out because it was 75 minutes long he said it's much too effing long it's going to die there's too much on it I really should have made it into two CDs Right. Uh, the liner notes featured a short story by Bowie titled The Diary of Nathan Adler or The Art Ritual Murder of Baby Grace Blue, a non-linear gothic drama hypercycle. Well done. It describes a dystopian version of 1999 whereby the government has created a new bureau to investigate the phenomenon of art crime. In this future, murder and mutilation of bodies have become a new underground art craze. Mm, the main character, Nathan Adler, was in the business of deciding what of this was legally acceptable as art 
and what was in a word, trash. The album is filled with references to characters and their lives as he investigates the complicated events leading up to the murder of a 14-year-old girl. And you're led to believe that Nathan Adler works for the British government due to several references to London and Oxford. But in the liner notes, however, these uh, cases are revealed to me in London, in Ontario, Canada and Oxford, New Jersey. The States. Well, do you know what? Were they? Well, <laughs> again, you, you, like sometimes with Bowie, you just couldn't trust anything that no, he would tell not. you. And he would and he would think on his feet. And, I, I, you know, you can imagine people dissecting it and looking at it and going, ah, oh, London, Oxford, right, yeah. OK, he's part of the government. And Bowie thinking, right, what can I do here? No. Uh, I'll just <laughs> subvert not, it again. It's, it's not that London. <laughs> no. That's, no, it's not that Oxford. No. <laughs> so uh, Bowie would claim that the album has strong smatterings of diamond dogs. The idea of this post-apocalyptic situation is that there somehow you can kind of feel it in interviews he said that outside was meant to reflect the anxiety of the last five years of the millennium saying overall a long-term ambition is to make it a series of albums extending to 1999 to try to capture using this device what the last five years of this millennium feel like it's a diary within a diary we get the references a lot five years again aren't we which is a recurring thing yeah. of course he went on to say that i've got the fondest hopes for uh fin de seal uh, i see it as a symbolic sacrifice right. I see it as a deviance, a pagan wish to appease God so we can move on. There's a real spiritual starvation out there. We have this panic button telling us it's going to be a colossal madness at the end of this century. Mm. So in 1999, Bowie said, perhaps the one through line between some of the stuffing outside and the coming millennium is this new pagan worship, this whole search for a new spiritual life that's going on. Because of the way that we're demolishing the idea of God with a triumvirate at the beginning of the century, Nietzsche, Einstein and Freud. It's all very heavy, this stuff. You it know? is. It's losing me already. And there's also this positivism, he went on to say, that you can find now it really wasn't there at the end of the last century. We may be a little wary or jittery about what's around the corner, but there's no feeling of everything's going to end in the year 2000. Instead, there's almost a celebratory feeling of, right, at least we can get cracking and really pull it all together. Having said that, there was that millennium bug scare, yeah. wasn't there? Where we, we were told, I mean, it was constant, like, you know, it was this drip, drip of paranoia that everything is going to go bonkers when the clock ticks over. I know. Well, it's hard to believe now, is it? But it was a genuine fear. And I was researching it for, I can't remember for what reason, but quite recently. And there were people in America, obviously, you know, we talk about extreme survivalists who went into caves and stocked up on food thinking the world is going to end because all the computers were going to die. <laughs> Needless to say, it didn't happen. It didn't. And I'm Mark Riley, and he's Bob Hughes and we are doing a David Bowie podcast. Hello. Uh, so Bowie had considered writing an album every year or so through to the end of the millennium. He said, this is a once-in-a-lifetime chance by a narrative device to chronicle the final five years of the millennium. The overambitious intention is to carry this through to the year 2000. It's an idea, isn't it? But it obviously it didn't happen. Well, it, it who was happen. it? No, it was um, Sufjan Stevens said that he, he wrote, come on, uh, feel the Illinois, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was going to write an album about every state, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did he do Michigan? Yeah. What was the other one? He did two, I think, maybe, <laughs> maybe three. But, you know, uh, it's just a, it's a great concept, but yeah. one that you're never going to follow no, through. No, definitely really. not. So well, Bowie suggested he might release more albums that continued the story begun in Outside, saying, I quite foresee that next year we'll develop a whole new slew of other characters or maybe reintroduce some of these or even negate some of them. Maybe we'll never find Baby Green race maybe adler will become the next victim i don't really know and that's kind of interesting maybe we'll just get bored with murderer's art and move into another area of our society it's all up for grabs he said 
His strange, it's, it's almost like a, a Stephen King kind of uh, hellish uh, scenario, isn't it? It's like yeah. the, something that comes out of a really madly inventive mind, which, of course, David Bowie had. Yeah. So Bowie intended to call a second follow-up album Contamination and had sketched out the characters for the album, involving some 17th century people, apparently. Oh, okay. And he had expected the album to be released in the spring of 97. Despite this, no direct follow-up of the album was ever produced, and Bowie's next album was his jungle and drum and bass influence work, Earth. Yeah, as we've covered. But we also mentioned the possibility of releasing an album called Inside, which would be about the making of Outside. As we know, no such album ever came out. Speaking years later, Bowie said, the one thing I can truly, seriously think about in the future that I would like to get my teeth into is the rest of the work that Eno and I did when we started to do the Outside album. It went on to say, we did improv for eight days. We had something in the area of 20 hours worth of stuff that I just cannot begin to get close to listening to. But there are some absolute gems in there. So in the day after Bowie's death in 2016, Eno recalled, about a year ago we started talking about Outside, the last album we worked on together. We both liked that album a lot and felt that it had fallen through the cracks. We talked about revisiting it, taking it somewhere new. I was looking forward to that. Yeah, intriguing that. Uh, speaking to us, when I was talking to Reeves Gabrels uh, a few years ago, actually, we got talking about Outside, and he said it was a concept long before there was an actual recording. For months before we actually began recording, there were faxes being sent back and forth between myself, David and Brian Eno. I actually kept a file of those faxes and I brought them to the sessions. I still have them to this day. Pretty amusing stuff. I wonder if we'll ever see that stuff. That would be great, because I'm sure that it's, you know, as we've talked before about, you know, maybe people like Coco, a lot of people who were, who were close to Bowie, non non closer than yeah, Coco, really. No, no. Uh, but releasing stuff, and they and and they probably won't do it because it will be very personal mm. stuff. But you can imagine this will be very playful and not that personal. Yeah, with it being between the three of them, mm. it probably is just a lot of mischief. As we know, I mean, like, like Bowie and Eno used to talk to each other in uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore right, voices yeah, yeah, yeah. and all that kind of stuff, and they used to sign themselves off with non diplumes Was it like right. Dorothy? <laughs> what well, I can't remember. Um, but uh, yeah, it would be great to see the unfold about the ideas and people picking up and running with other people's ideas. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, Reeves, get on it, mate. Mm. Uh, Reeves Gabrels went on to make it a little more odd. I was on the road with Paul Rogers playing blues rock across America and I come back to my hotel room to find an email from Brian asking me if I could write three pieces of music to be played simultaneously that would be at odds with each other for a minute or so, suddenly line up for one or two bars and then move apart again. Before Pro Tools, he says here, from full-on cock rock to Philip Glass-style compositions in one evening. The story of my musical life. I love that. I mean, always interesting, I imagine, for him. Changes as good as the rest, eh? Definitely. Uh, pianist Mike Garson remembered later, it was one of the most creative environments I've ever been in. We'd just start playing. There was no key given, no tonal centre, no form, no nothing. So the album got to number eight in the UK and number 21 in America. And one of Bowie's more underrated albums, this, I think. What I love about it, obviously it's released right at the height of Britpop, isn't it? And you could have mm. forgiven Bowie, or perhaps a lesser artist, for just really jumping on that bandwagon and saying, look, I'm, I'm one of the godfathers of this whole scene, really kind of cashing in. It's like he went deliberately went the other way, didn't he? You know, this experimental, strange art rock concept album was so, so far removed from all that very reductive Britpop. We've also spoken before about the fact that he was slightly, yeah, obsessed might be too much of a word, 
word, but uh, with the prodigy and yeah. wanting to work with Liam from the mm. band and everything, and it not panning out because apparently Liam Hallett wasn't that interested yeah. or whatever. Uh, but the, you know, as we see where he goes next with Earthling mm. is, I mean, that's that's a great album. It is too. I it know is. it's much derided and that, mm. but I, I absolutely love it anyway. Uh, so let's look at the critical reception. Rolling Stone gave Outside three out of five stars, criticizing the narrative tracks as over elaborate characterizations that damn near sink the record. On a musical level, however, they called it arguably its best work since the 70s, praising its potent collection of avant-garage riffs and rhythm notions. The enemy remarked that Bowie's scalpel is certainly closer to the pulse than for years. A melody maker, meanwhile, said that Bowie is poised to be a healthy influence once more on a fifth generation of glamorous chameleons. Oh, I'm sure he loved the chameleon reference. Oh, he didn't, did he? Okay, and both The Guardian and Time Out called it Bowie's best album in 15 years, since Scary Monsters, that would be. Yeah, following Bowie's death, uh, Prog magazine said that pilloried by some at the time for its perceived self-indulgence, Outside will now be re-evaluated and be found to be one of his very best. True. Yeah, that was it. It was just such a brave piece, wasn't yeah, it? And, yeah. and crackers. It yeah. really was crackers. Uh, Consequence of Sound ranked Outside number seven on its ranking list of David Bowie's studio albums, higher than Blackstar or Station to Station, Steady. Mm, come on. Stating that the album succeeded because Bowie bought in completely to its concept and strangeness. All right. So we get to the Outside tour now. So Bowie considered performing outside theatrically but wasn't quite sure how to go about it he said that it's far too ambitious a project for me it's attractive to be working with something which resembles Brecht's work or the pieces he did with Vile yeah I mean again you can see him sat there thinking right how am I going to do this and then and then going back and looking at Diamond Dogs, which was obviously a success, was slightly crazy with the with the yeah, set that sure. they had and all that kind of stuff. And then the abject lunacy of um, Glass Spider, mm. where it just completely out of control. And as we know, again, we've discussed the fact that it was a game changer, but it was problematic for Bowie on Very several much. different levels. Yeah. And then he probably just thought, oh, do you know what? I can't be bothered. Yeah, <laughs> all that hassle again. <laughs> and, and expense as well. Uh, so instead, Bowie took outside on tour from late 1995 to early 1996 with Nine Inch Nails as support. The band, Bowie, Reeves Gabrels, Gail and Dorsey, Peter Schwartz, Zach Alford, Carlos Alomar, Mike Garson and George Sims. Yeah, that's right. So both uh, Alford and Dorsey would become mainstays of Bowie's band from this point on, of course. In addition to steering clear of the big hits that he played five years earlier on the Sound of Vision tour, the first few weeks of Outside Tour saw Bowie and his band concentrating on songs from the as-yet-unreleased album. Mm. So again, you know, being slightly contrary here, he also chose more obscure stuff from Low, Lodger, Scary Monsters and Heroes. And when some people complained about him not playing the hits, Bowie countered by saying, if they didn't know that or wasn't going to be playing the hits, they must have been living under a rock. Good point, David. Um, here we go. Morrissey opened for Bowie in the UK in September 1995, ending with three shows at Wembley Arena. Incidentally, Bowie's backstage visitors at Wembley included ex-manager Ken Pitt, then 73 years old. Ah. Well, uh, When Morrissey's set wasn't greeted with much enthusiasm at Wembley, he told the crowd in a bad-tempered voice, Don't worry, David will be on soon. And, you know, and he jumped ship at one point he in that did. tour, didn't We're going to get to that in a second, yeah. Okay. Morrissey was also supposed to be the support act during the European leg in October, but he cancelled his commitments just before the tour began, disappearing before Bowie's show in Aberdeen, and Bowie replaced him with Echabelli. There is a story about the uh, Morrissey and uh, yeah, yes. not tipping up on the night. I mean, mm. like, everybody waiting for him to actually just tip up and he wasn't there. No. Well, you saw this tour, didn't you? I mean, I'm so jealous because you saw this tour. I did see the tour. I saw it in Manchester, and I, I, I 
and we'll get to where I first saw it in a mm. moment. But with Morrissey, uh, he, I, I, the story at the time was that he was livid because the lights were on quite often when he was uh, performing. Right. And of course, Morrissey's acolytes are so feverish about him mm. and so, like, you know, the, the hero worship, like the Bowie thing, obviously. But for him to be playing at maybe Wembley, you know, on stage at half seven, quarter to eight, whatever, the house lights up. Yeah, people coming in, people not bothered about Mozza. People going and bringing pints back and forth. Sure. He's used to be the adulation and people throwing themselves at him, him throwing his shirt into the crowd yeah. and loving it. So I mean, you know, for whatever you think of Morrissey, it must have been a real shock for him. Yeah, definitely. But then he must have had an idea he was going in for that. That that was what he would be in for. He was. He wasn't going to be centre of attention here, was he? Well, you, yeah, maybe you he thought that, he was. You, I don't know. I don't know about that. But the bottom line is, he did pull out. He did because he wasn't getting what he wanted. So anyway. Anyway, uh, but yeah, the, the first time I saw it yes. uh, was uh, on the 16th of September, 1995, and it was Great Woods Arena in Mansfield in America. Oh, Just get you. I know, I know. Oh. Uh, and here's the story, okay? So um, we heard that Bowie, or I heard that Bowie was back. Yes. Okay, so this album was looming large. And so I rang up the uh, the pluggers for the album, Ferret and Spanner, and I spoke to Neil Ferris, and I said, look, mm. look me and Radcliffe, we're both massive Bowie fans. Is there any chance we could do something with him? And uh, he said, well, actually, uh, we've kind of booked it in with um, Steve Lamack. Right. Who isn't really a Bowie, mm. a Bowie fan, you know? Mm. So I said, well, all the flipping horses here, mate. Um, because me and Radcliffe are like huge fans. Yes. And we'd be really, really thrilled about it. And he was like... Yeah, okay. All right, leave it with me. He got back a couple of days later. He said, um, yeah, I think we can do this, but we've got a bit of a problem with the geography and all that. I'm going, okay, why? Uh, what's the problem? He said, well, could you possibly go to New York to do it? I can't imagine what you said to that, Mark. Mm, well, it obviously took a few weeks thinking about yeah. it, or was it a few nanoseconds? But it was like, yes, of course Whoa. we can. In those days, uh, we could get the budget uh, to fly over to New York. And yeah. so myself, Radcliffe, and Liz Roberts, the producer, we flew over to New York. And I remember we had one really mad, crazy, drunken night when we got there and we were, we were um, jet-lagged as well. And we went to see Bowie doing this show. Yeah. And it was great. It really was brilliant. So we went to this arena. It was in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so we flew to Boston, I think, would it have been? Oh, my memory. And then drove out to the place. Mm. And and we watched uh, Nine Inch Nails. I'm not a mad fan on, if, yeah, you know, sure. if yeah. I'm honest. But anyway, and but what they did, and it has been well told, the story, is that Nine Inch Nails played and then Bowie came on. And then they did some songs together. So it was Subterranean, Scary Monsters, Reptile, Hello Space Boy, and Hurt. Hurt ah. being the Nine Inch Nails song that Johnny Cash Yeah, covered. sure. Um, and progressively, over that period of time, the Nine Inch Nails musicians would leave the stage and Bowie's musicians would join them. So it was a transition. Oh, OK, right. Sort of like one by one almost. Yeah. That kind of thing. All right. It was almost like a tag team. Right. And it was a great way of doing it. It really was. And again, you know, it, the sound that Bowie was giving out at that point in time was not what I was expecting really yeah, you know sure. it, it was it was a little bit of a yeah a bit of an eye-opener yeah as you would expect with Bowie mm. and it was a couple of days later as I remember it uh, that Bowie came uh, to join us in a little studio a tiny little studio again so it's me Mark and Liz and it's a studio that Alistair Cook used to do letters from America for ah me. okay right so a tiny little so you've got the control room with a small desk in there and then you've got the actual broadcast room and uh, I do remember us just sat there me and Radcliffe particularly being terrified, just waiting, just sat there looking at wow. each other. And then bring, bring. <gasps> and the phone went. <laughs> right, okay. So then let's put the phone. I said, is he here? And honestly, it was 
I bet. I bet. I take it Mark hadn't met him before either. No, yeah. he hadn't. No. And, uh, and you know, I, I, again, everybody says it, but it's true. He came and he just immediately put us at ease. And he was absolutely brilliant. And he was just a right old laugh. I, I, I don't even know if Coco was with him. Well, okay. I, I, I can't remember. He might have been on his own. Right. Uh, not 100% sure. Again, my memory, forgive me. Do you remember what his first words were? Apart from uh, hello, fellas. Uh, yeah, it was something like that. It was something very disarming, like, you know, all right, lads, you right, know, right. or, yeah, and, and whenever we would see him, we would always allude to stuff that he'd heard on the programme or heard us doing. Right. So whether it was somebody had primed him just beforehand or not, yeah. that was a way about him, you know, he really did just make you feel completely at ease straight away. And that's why, you know, David Bowie was never anywhere near being a mate of mine. But the last time I met him in 2004, I didn't get his autograph and we immediately just started talking and having a laugh you know so oh, it did get to that stage yeah, and I'm, sure. very, I'm very very grateful for that but anyway that is a story and that was yeah the first time that uh, mark radcliffe and i ever met david bowie well that is wonderful hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. Always for Oxford Town Hall. So, a little history here for you, uh, Robert, and everybody else. Oxford Town Hall is a public building in St. Aldate Street in central Oxford. It's both the seat of Oxford City Council and a venue for public meetings, entertainment and other events. It also includes a museum of Oxford. Well, I didn't know that, Mark. Oxford is a city with its own charter, but the building is always called the Town Hall. It's Oxford's third seat of government to have stood on the same site. The present building, completed in 1897, is Grade 2 listed. So there. 
there. Yeah, it's also been a popular gig venue. During the Ziggy Stardust tour of 1972, Bowie and the Spiders played there on Saturday the 17th of June. And to give a measure of just how thorough the Ziggy tour was uh, and how his fan base was growing at the time, they'd already played two nights at Oxford less than a month earlier at the Polytechnic. Right, OK. The Town Hall gig went down, I mean, no pun intended here, in Bowie lore because of the fact that during Suffragette City, Bowie simulated fellatio on Mick Ronson's guitar and it was captured by photographer Mick Rock. Bowie and Main Man, his management company, then sent the picture to Melody Maker as the basis for a full-page ad on which Bowie had written a message in Tipex, hadn't he? Thanks with an X to all our people for making Ziggy with a kiss. I love you, Bowie. Yeah, recalling the incident in Mick Rock's Moon Age Daydream book, Bowie wrote, For a number of weeks on stage, Mick Ronson had been throwing in a variety of guitar moves in order to find something of his own. This was proving difficult, as it felt like everything had been done already, from Chuck Berry's duck walk to setting the damn thing on fire. He'd win Mill like Townsend, played it behind his back like Dave Edmonds in his love sculpture mode, and at present he was going through a Hendrix, play it with your teeth bit. <laughs> uh, Bowie continued, as we sound checked in Oxford, it occurred to me that one person gnawing the guitar was one thing, but two people, well, that was two things, probably. <laughs> I got all excited about this brave new idea and told Mick that whatever happened tonight, he should just keep going. He says, uh, I rarely pre-warn the band of things that I might get up to, as many interesting ideas were shot down before they were even hatched. Such was a conservative disposition of these particular anthropods. <laughs> Mick, usually the main offender. So he's referring here, I think, uh, uh, particularly as we know about the makeup. That's right, yeah. And the clothes, wasn't it? So it was that, it, the, the introduction of some of the more outlandish clubber yeah. early on at Haddon Hall had yeah. Mick Ronson heading off to the train station with Woody chasing yeah. him. In a big strop. Yeah, yeah, I'm not wearing that rubbish. And anyway. also when he's putting makeup on, you know, that's to right. do TV, that's that was right. a thing, wasn't it? And they're like going, <laughs> we're not putting makeup on. And Bowie's going, oh, that's a shame. What, what, what do you mean it's a shame? Well, yeah, you look very trans- Loosen, you look ill under the lights. Really? Well, I'll, I'll try just a bit. Yeah, that was brilliant. <laughs> to coerce all these people. Bowie went on. He said, in fact, if I try to recapture his accent, I hear, don't need to as being uh, Mick's verbal signature. <laughs> if I were ever to suggest going to see an art show or something theatrical or even some new band, Mick would constantly reply, I don't want to because I don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't hear that in the whole tones, can't you? Oh, yeah. I, I, I do remember do hearing uh, the flexi disc for Mick Ronson <laughs> when it got sent through uh, with the fan club, I'm, I'm presuming. Yes, it was with the fan club. Yeah. And uh, and the voice, the, the accent that Mick had, just a really brilliant Yorkshire oh, accent, yes. was not what I was expecting. No, not at all, because you can't put those two things together, do you? You see the visuals, so yeah, striking. You know, and I mean, to this day, Woody's still really got that yeah. underside accent, hasn't he? And it's absolutely brilliant. But you're looking at them as these otherworldly creatures, and it's not what you expect. Not at all. I mean, I don't know why you would expect it to be like a Cockney accent, really. Not like, you know, a Pearly <laughs> King, but, you know, a, a Southern London accent. Certainly, yeah. But, definitely. yeah, I don't know the really rounded tones from Yorkshire flying at you from... Uh, I think Mick Ronson says, like, he was the greatest thing in the world. Right, OK. Like, oh, that's, that's what Mick Ronson sounds like. <laughs> anyway, on this night, however, uh, Mick wouldn't get a chance to object. I don't remember which song it was, but there came that time when the guitar was raised and the teeth were displayed. Only much to Mick's surprise, two sets of gnashes were bared. Ronson's jaw politely withdrew as mine took over and the dance began. <laughs> and also, <laughs> this is like great. This is Bowie's skills as a storyteller. It's great. Fantastic. He carried on. Inevitably and comically, there came a time when Mick's arms grew tired from holding his guitar at shoulder height and it slid slowly back down to his groin. I didn't stop munching. <laughs> Mick Rock took his pictures and a new guitar bit was born. Munching. <laughs> 
<laughs> so Mick Rock processed the film overnight and met Bowie at Mayman's office the next day. He wrote all over the print, as I just mentioned, and persuaded Tony DeFries to buy a full-page ad in Melody Maker to create a stir. And it damn well did. It did. So this is Mick Rock talking to you, Bobber. Oh, yeah. It was too late to get the piece in the paper, so David and the management actually bought a page in Melody Maker to say thank you to his rising fans. That had been the biggest gig to date, a thousand-seater. It didn't actually pre-warn me about this shot. David told me later that he wasn't actually intended to go down on his knees. And if you see the actual shot, he's not really on his knees, his feet are splayed. Uh, all he was trying to do was bite Mick's guitar. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Mick was swinging his guitar around. David said that's why he had to take up that position. It is comedic, isn't it? Is, it? But, but, it is. But, but at the same time, one of the most iconic oh. rock moments of the last 50 years for it is, me. Anyway. It is such a moment. Uh, Mick Rock continued. He said, maybe it's the delicate way uh, that David is clutching Mick's cheeks that did it. Then, of course, <laughs> after that, he played that boy-girl thing with Mick at a lot of shows with some variations. Sometimes he just assumed a position of submission with Mick straddling him. Uh, I've been up front for a bit. He's talking about the Oxford gig. Then for the encore, I jumped up to the side of the stage. Having the relationship I had with David and the team at that point, they let me jump up there. So I was at the perfect spot at the perfect moment. Of all the shots of him, this is the one that lingers longest in the memory. It's an incredibly durable image. I was known as the man who shot Ziggy Stardust. Great. Yeah, and also, I mean, it's famously a cover, again, of Melody Maker, of Mick Ronson stood over Bowie on stage. Mm. I don't know, was it Earl's Court, or it might have even just been a headline about Earl's Court, possibly, but Bowie's in a ball, and Mick Ronson is stood over him. Yeah. So that's what he was relating to there, yeah. which, again, a, a remarkable shot. I'm not sure if it's one of Mick Rock's or not. Uh, you can see all the star stuff he was projecting, like Mad then, Starman, Prettiest Star, Moon Age Daydream. He wanted it bad, he really did. At one point, when I was interviewing him, he said, you know, I'm so focused on what I'm doing, Mick, that if you were to come and tell me my best friend had just died, I'd probably say, mm, that's really sad. Right, go back to work. That was how he thought of himself. It was important for him to be a star. And we've talked about this, haven't we, this yeah. projection thing. Uh, Mick Rock went on, he said, people forget that Ziggy Stardust was all projection because he wasn't a star at the moment he recorded the album and Starman, but he kept on projecting and it all sort of happened before my eyeballs. It was one of those strange coincidences of time and fate. Starman was the setup for the album. That's song was the reason there was a thousand people at Oxford Town Hall that night. After that, everything got very strange and interesting. Do you know, it is funny because uh, on Twitter recently, I just posted a little plaque which was beside the uh, Starman costume. Oh, at the Bowie Is exhibition. Bowie Is, yeah. yeah. And, I just, and I just put on Twitter, I didn't even know that this quote was being used, so I'm stood there having this real moment looking at the costume. Yeah. And then I turn around and see just these orange plaques all around just to accompany and explain what's going on. And it had my quote on it and it, and it was a moment for mm. me. And some people on Twitter were saying like, uh, oh, it wasn't that big a, a deal that night at Top of the Pops because I was that, that it was pivotal that night and it just sure. it ignited uh, the, the souls of like a thousand yeah of course th thousands of, uh, of yeah. young people and they go no and some people say no i don't know about that well you know for your own personal experience maybe not but for me most certainly it really was and they were saying i don't think anybody was shocked which wasn't a word that i used but was on the same actual plaque right okay but i remember my dad going what the hell <laughs> and even my sister said something you right, know okay. she ended up liking bowie not that long after yeah, but yeah. 
Yeah. So that was just my own personal experience. So you, 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 we had much of that going on in just my house, but I know for a fact that the next day people were saying, did you see that last night? Mm. Either it was great or it was shocking. And he also mentioned on Twitter the fact that I did get a thump off a, a kind of a mate of mine called Sean right. who likes Slade. And he said, oh, did you see that last night? I was going, yeah, yeah, he's amazing, isn't he? And he went, no, he's not, Bob. Really? Wow, okay. So well, there is no denying uh, yeah. that, you know. It made an impact. And also, you've got to remember this, it's also subjective, this stuff, isn't it? Mm. You know, what, what is pivotal to one person is not to another, etc., etc. As a postscript to this from Kevin Can's book, Any Day Now, during the tour, on a brief return to Haddon Hall, David and some bandmates discovered his prized record collection scattered across the living room floor, with covers and vinyl scrawled on with ballpoint pen. Left unattended for a brief while, Zowie, Zowie, uh, had comprehensively trashed his father's record collection. David is not amused. I really like that. <laughs> Coming yeah. home to find that. Yeah, there's another little story here. Oh, yeah. It was 7th of July, 2001. I'd been asked to introduce all of the bands, not Radiohead themselves, because they were playing at South Park, a ginormous oh, place right. in Oxford. And they'd got the people from South Park, the, the uh, animation, to do a little 15-minute, maybe, animation about Radiohead to introduce them to the stage kind of thing. Okay. But I was asked to introduce Supergrass, Sigur Ross, Humphrey Littleton. At, <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, well, he played with Radiohead, didn't he? <laughs> So, ah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and yeah. Beck. And uh, and everything kind of went to, to plan, apart from Beck, who um, just ignored me and then went on stage. Oh, I, can't, I can't say I blame him. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so it, it was uh, on the morning. It was a bit weird because the night before we'd gotten there on the Friday night, and, uh, yeah, our Beth was very poorly, so Trace and Beth didn't go to the gig in the end. Right. But me, me and Kate went, and we were lucky enough to be in the, the pit down the front. Um, and the Friday night, Bill Clinton was staying in the same hotel as us. Really? And there was all these, like, CIA guys talking into the cuffs. It was all bizarre. Wow. But in the morning before I went off to the site, there was a record fair at Oxford Town Hall. So I went to it and I had a look round and I bought some stuff and I got outside and then I just looked at the building and then I thought, damn, that, oh. that's Oxford Town Hall. So it hadn't dawned on you before that moment. No, right. it hadn't. And so I went back in again. I still had my ticket. I'm not going to pay twice, are you? And I went and I, I went back to where I had been before. Yeah. I, you go in the hall and there's stalls everywhere. There were also stalls on the stage. Right. And so I just walked up the steps and stood on the stage for like 10 minutes just thinking, this is where Mick Rock stood. That is where David Bowie and Mick Ronson got up to uh, the mischief, (laughs) you know. And again, I I, I really did seriously have a moment. I was thinking, this is it, and I'm on this stage, right? I'm off now. And then I went off and did uh, whatever else. Oh, you didn't get down on your knees and start gnawing away at a table, did you? (laughs) No. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. O is for the Old Grey Whistle Test. Ah, indeed. Now, we know about the whistle test, don't we? How it started by Rowan Ayres, Kevin Ayres, dad, for That's a start. Right. And, of course, Kevin Ayres ended up playing on it, mm. so that worked. Yeah, but for us, as Bowie lovers, the pivotal moment happened. Well, it was transmitted on the 8th of February 1972 when uh, Bowie and his new band, it's got to be said, this is the, uh, well, Spiders from Mars appeared on there, didn't they? They recorded it a day earlier on the 7th of Feb. And I think there was somebody at Gem Production called Anya Wilson who'd been dying to get Bowie on Whistle Test for a long, long time. And I think she'd come up with a lot of resistance. Some of the people had seen him in his Mr Fish dress and said, I'm not having that on here. You know, it was that kind of attitude towards him. But suddenly he's in there at a really, really important juncture in his career, isn't he? Well, the thing is, you know, uh, we, we've talked about um, Bob Harris in this, and Bob Harris wasn't the original uh, presenter of the Old Game. Richard Williams, wasn't it? Yeah. But Bob Harris did share a flat at one point with Andrew 
Angie Bowie. Right, yeah. And there was a lot of cross-pollination with, with Bob Harris and Bowie, mm. and Bowie was really championed by Bob Harris as well, and really uh, lo- lots of uh, introducing at gigs and stuff like that, as I remember. Yeah, yeah. And I did actually ask Bob if he would do something for us for this podcast, and he said he would, but then okay. he, he eventually never got back, so he, he, he must have had a change of heart, and fair enough. But you'd have to wonder if it wasn't Bob Harris in there now, and, and, and for people of a certain age, you've all got your own little um, period of the old gay whistle test. That means something to you, haven't you? Yeah, sure. So, of course, I mean, I remember Andy Kershaw and Annie Nightingale and, Ma- and Ma- yeah. Mark... Um, Mark Ellen. Mark yeah, Ellen. Yeah. But, but, you know, for me, it was... Uh, Bob Harris was presenting it when I first watched it. But I wasn't watching the old gay whistle test when that went out. No, well, I wasn't Well, I wasn't even watching it when Bob was presenting it. I mean, I remember, the earliest presenter I remember was uh, Annie Nightingale. So right. there you go. Well, obviously, you see all this stuff, and there's a Best of Bowie DVD where, where the three tunes came on. They're always played on uh, whistle test retrospectives, aren't they? And they're such kind of iconic showings as well. And the band looked great, sound great. So it was the, the actual music was recorded, and they mimed to it, but Bowie did the live vocals yeah. and, the, and the backing vocals. That's how they would do it. Yeah. And it was so brave, uh, the old gay whistle test. I mean, I think I started watching it around about the time that they showed some footage of Genesis doing I Know What I Like in Your oh, right, logo, I've seen that, yeah. from The Rainbow, I think. Yeah. it was uh, and I, that was kind of when I got into the old gay whistle test so would that have been like late 1973 maybe uh, yeah 73, 74 possibly right yeah. okay uh, so yeah I think it probably was 73 yeah, and okay. so uh, there were all these bands and when I got into it you would be watching the sensational Alex Harvey band yeah. and all of these things and all of the things that you missed then get thrown back at you years mm. later and at that point in time it was just deemed to be a programme you would watch it and it would be gone but now we know that the old gay whistle test is one of the jewels in the BBC BBC's crown, isn't it? Absolutely. And you think about the New York Dolls being on there. We talked about the <laughs> controversy surrounding that and all. And Roxy say, music. Alex, yeah, Roxy music. Alex Harvey doing next. I mean, the real kind of pivotal stuff, this, isn't it? Even through the Talking Heads and, and Patti Smith and all those kind of people as well, and New Wave. But, you know, for us, it's got to be Bowie doing the three songs. So we did Oh You Pretty Things, Queen Bitch, and uh, the unreleased, unheard, Five Years. Yeah. Because he's essentially he's promoting Hunky Dory in February 72 still. And he is still like he's, he's yet to go for the full Ziggy cut. So mm. you're looking at him at the, in, when he's transforming from one to the other, isn't he? You yeah. Know, obviously the long locks had gone from Hunky mm. Dory, and he'd, he'd got this little tousled haircut, but he hadn't really gone for the full sp- no. spiny Norman no. kind of <laughs> it was uh, brown. Yeah. Wasn't it? Uh, and of course he's got his great quilted Ziggy jumpsuit on, and the rest of the band look great. So you got Woody in his uh, in his little satin top there playing the drums. You've got Mick with his gold Gibson, uh, and Trevor Boulder with his fantastic sideburns a lot. So they're looking the part, just not quite the finished product yet from a visual point of view anyway work in progress but that's a great thing about it just seeing it yeah him going from one part of his career to another they caught him at that moment in time and yeah it's absolutely priceless yeah and you gotta remember as well so Bowie's on piano at one point doing uh, Oh You Pretty Things but that great little scene when they think it's for Queen Bitch isn't it where the camera pans up from his red boxer boots up his jumpsuit and he's playing a blue acoustic guitar and Mick comes over they share a mic it's just such a great moment it is the A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. Recorded and edited by Howard Nock. With social media graphics by Jason Reed. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode. Elvis Presley, the Philly Dogs Tour, Pinups, Pink Floyd, Peter and the Wolves. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.